The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Presenting Season 7, Run Silent, Run Deep. Fire on the Mountain, Part 1. Written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, and Dennis Lee. Ladies and gentlemen, we have our miracle. That was how Bella had put it in a joint meeting of her advisory council. A miracle, something to make it clear to the world that Echo was not weak, not ineffective, and not sitting on its collective hands. Something to prove that not even the loss of Alex Tesla and the machinations of Dominic Verdigree could blunt their edge. Something to prove that they were more than willing to take the fight to the Thulians. We have our miracle. Tesla and Marconi have given us the location of the Krieger North American HQ. It's payback time. Testing, said Vicky. John blinked a little, jarred out of the memory. The new implants made it sound as if she was standing right next to him. He'd been using them for some time, but he still had not become used to them. Not everyone had implants, of course, just the infiltration team and the commanders for the ground teams, along with a select few in other areas. The rest had to make do with earbuds and throat mics. This stuff was some more of her magic techie stuff. There'd been no operation as such. she just placed the gadgets. Something for an HUD that didn't need a visor, a mouth mic for subvocals, and implants to hear with, against his skin, and it had all kind of melted into him. As a former member of the world's most technologically advanced military, John was always wowed and in favor of more gee-whiz fun things that made his job easier. But he still liked to have at least a rudimentary understanding of the tech, too. This new stuff, particularly anything dealing with magic, gave him the creeps. Results counted, though, so he accepted it. The HUD was particularly weird. Some sort of tiny device that fed information into the optic nerve inside his eyes. What he saw, floating between his eyes and the rest of the world, looked just like standard HD projections, like stuff from the Future Warrior Project that was all the rage for a while. John fidgeted in his control harness. He had been, back when the universe made a modicum of sense, a patient man, and had understood that it was a required trait for being a member of the special operations community. Right now, he just wanted to get on with things, take the fight to the enemy, and to do something that had an impact. Not like I have all the time in the world to do so anymore. He shifted again, trying to brush off his imminent mortality. Are we still on schedule, Vic? That's a Raj. Countdown is in your HUD. Want some music? She sounded quite calm, as if she didn't know she was talking to a dying man. Or a walking dead man. Maybe that was her way of keeping him sane. Nah, just keep me updated. He glanced at the first team leader, an accomplished Echo Meta named Bulwark. John didn't like Bulwark very much, and he was sure that the feeling was more than mutual. Bulwark, while just as professional as John, was a company man. To him, John was probably dubious. John had all the moves and the manners of the military, but an unknown background, and on top of that was part of the CCCP. Then again, the Echo Operative was riding herd on Red Genie. Compared to the Genie, John probably looked like a Boy Scout. He wished with a profound ache that Sarah was here, but she said she had to stay in Atlanta. She didn't tell him why, and he didn't ask. 
Maybe it was to keep that rat-bastard Verdigree from trying anything while most of Echo was out here. Verd still had Fei Li. It wouldn't be out of character for him to put a hit on Bella if he thought he could get away with it. Sarah had filled him with that strength and energy of hers before he left, and to most people he was passing as his normal self. But he felt fragile, like a thin glass bottle holding white-hot plasma. Mamona piped up from the back of the cramped crew compartment, sandwiched between Motu and Matai. What happens if they figure us out? Simple, comrade. They blow us out of the sky. John flashed a wolfish smile over his shoulder. They won't figure you out as long as everything works right. That was Vicky. And I have contingencies on my contingencies. The death machine they were riding in had been recovered several months previously from Lake Michigan, one of the captured Thulian orbs that a mysterious Dr. Dusk had brought down undamaged. This Dr. Dusk character hadn't been sighted before or since the invasion. For an unregistered metahuman, he would have had to be something else to take out a Thulian orb all on his lonesome, and without damaging it to boot. Bulwark was the only one that was granted clearance to get minimal training for the craft. John wasn't very happy about it, but orders were orders. He'd still rather have cross-training for the rest of the team. No telling what would happen once they were on site. Having another trained pilot for one of these gizmos might save their hides. It was too late for it now. CCCP is in place. Echo Squad 1 is in place. Echo Squad 2 is moving in. Hammer is online and almost on station. Air support is on station. John unhooked himself from his chair. Equipment check, everyone. Smoke them if you got them and get your kit ready. Once everything starts, there's no turning back. John Crouch walked through the cabin, being careful not to step on anyone. The conditions in the Thulian vessel were extremely cramped. They had eight people in a space built for five. He function-checked weapons, made sure everyone had extra ammunition, quizzed them on passwords and call signs, and inspected to see if anyone had any gear improperly secured. Noise discipline was going to be tantamount for this mission. Satisfied that everyone was ready, he took his place next to Bulwark. We're ready to go, Vic. Just give the command. The death machine was located in one of the western peaks in relation to the Thulian HQ. It gave a commanding view of the entire valley where the battle was to take place, as well as the whole of the HQ's exterior. John, with the help of Gamayun, had consulted the Commissar personally about their positioning, using terrain maps and satellite pictures to get an accurate idea of the elevation changes. It was inhospitable country. There was a reason why the Park Service strongly recommended no one go off the trails in the Superstition Mountains, and a reason why the BLM flat-out forbade prospecting. Right now, out there, the temperature was 110 in the shade. Sure as hell glad I'm going to be inside for my part of the fight. Hope everybody packed enough H2O. Echo Squad 2 is in place. Echo Squads 3 and 4 are moving in. Hammer is on station and holding. John held his breath. This was it. The seconds ticked off, and time moved by at a crawl. Echo Squads 3 and 4 are in place. Hold for Commissar Red Savior. The Commissar's voice made him jump a little. He was used to having a disembodied Vicky in his head. Not so Red Savior. Final check. Being sound off. Giving go or no go? Echo 4, go. Echo 3, go. Echo 2, that's a go. 
Air support, we're on station. Go. Bulwark cleared his throat. Infill, go. Echo one, go, Commissar. Squad red, ready. A new voice with the clipped tones of a military scientist chimed in. Hammer, go. Savior's voice was just as cool. All squads confirmed go status. Molotov, you are clear for launch. Molotov. That was Russian for hammer. Figured for Savior to say it in Russian. There was a long pause. John kept his gaze focused on the entrance for the Nazi HQ. If everything went according to plan, the favor that Vicky had somehow called in, or used blackmail to get, from some high-ranking muckety-muck in the Air Force Space Agency would hit the entrance dead on. Seconds passed. John was beginning to suspect that there was a problem or that those in charge hadn't understood the commissar when the biggest explosion he had ever personally seen erupted a mere two hundred yards away. Danger! Goddamn close! It was two thousand yards to the east of the Thulian HQ and nearly on top of the death machine he was inside. His teeth rattled inside of his head and he saw spots. A quick glance over his shoulder confirmed that everyone inside was alive, albeit shook up. More tense waiting. Here's hoping that they don't drop the next one right on top of us. It happened sooner than John thought it would. To reorient something in parking orbit miles above the Earth, calibrate it so that it could strike the target a size of a Buick, it was math that was beyond John. But the NASA and DARPA eggheads had done it. A solid tungsten rod, half the size of a telephone pole, with a baby guidance computer and some stabilizing fins, smashed into the top of the Thulian HQ. John realized later that the first round that had almost hit them was merely a ranging shot, nowhere near the full power of what was coming. It hit the stone facade at orbital velocity. The sheer energy released was on scale with a tactical nuclear device, or some of the largest conventional bombs ever detonated. Debris and superheated dust exploded outward, forming the iconic Cold War mushroom cloud. John could see some sort of energy shield rippling in the very belly of the explosion. It was awesome, a testament to the preparations of a generation that feared Soviet dominance of space, a true space-age weapon. It struck him as ironic that it was now being used to serve a coalition force that was partially composed of hardliners. That'll get their attention. And being glad was never used as planned, Savior said dryly over the freak. Dave, Dave, Echo One comrades, deploy! The side of the mountain that hid the Thulians had evaporated, exposing the entrance. As if they had heard, the hangar door split open, orange and malevolent light spilling out through the smoke and dust. Almost immediately, Thulian troopers and death machines began to pour out, like ants from a disturbed nest. Bulwark spoke up. We're waiting until the second wave comes. Then we make our move. Roger, Infill. That was Vicky. I've got Savior on her own freak now. Fewer voices in your ear, the better. CCCP and Echo One moving in to intercept now. Air support on the way. They're going to lay thermite bombs and boost napalm in arc light right behind the first wave. It was very easy to be detached when you were hundreds of miles away from a furnace-hot valley that was about to get a lot hotter. Vicky tried not to be too detached. This wasn't a video game. Air support ETA, 90 seconds, Commissar. The Thulians, despite having their visages hidden behind armor and death machine viewports, looked pissed.
They moved with a purpose. Their supposedly secret North American headquarters had just been attacked with one of the most powerful weapons in the history of Earth, discounting nukes and op for metahumans. They charged ahead in attack columns, with additional SS troops attached to the death machines. Echo-1, comprised of fast movers and shooters, went out to engage them. She recognized one of the metahumans, Speed Fiend, with a passenger. She'd taken note of him for being connected with Johnny, during the fight between the whole of the CCCP and the Rebs on the outskirts of Atlanta. Parker, the Meta's Christian name, was speeding ahead of the rest of the squad. A very serious-looking Echo Op 2 with a grenade launcher was riding shotgun with him. Parker, that was ironic, considering he was doing everything but park right now. Equally ironic, that was Bella's last name. Back it down, Speed. Echo 1, Davi the hell up and close ranks. She switched to Russian and repeated it on the CCCP freak. Nothing like telling them that they would be on fire if they didn't move like they were going to get them motivated. She switched to the AirTac comm freak. This was like touch typing now. She could switch freaks and cameras without even thinking about where her fingers should go. Vicky scooted a stealthed eye the last couple feet to where she wanted the strafing run to start, and another to the end, and painted the spots with laser dots. Angel Flight, you are go for primary bombardment. T-Bird, you are go for follow-on bombardment. The Air Force Thunderbirds were not the only aerobatic team that had practiced combat against simulated metahuman targets before the invasion. The T-Birds had gotten all the press coverage, given that they were clearing out Vegas where there were a zillion cameras, not counting cell phones. The Blue Angels had been itching to prove they were better than their fellow airmen ever since. Now they were getting their chance in their six hardened F-A-18 Hornets, followed by the six Thunderbirds in their F-16 Vipers, as the crews called them, literally coming in at Mach 1 at least. The first jet crested the ridge. The Mach 1 shockwave rippled across the battlefield. It was dwarfed by the inferno the jets laid down. And at Mach 1, with the expert pilots of the Angels and Thunderbirds at the stick, not even the Thulians could move in time to track on them. They laid down their rockets and incendiary cannon fire, putting a slash of hell across the landscape that cut the first wave off from behind, then climbed vertically in what must have been nearly 9G climbs. Sadly, the two eyes were the first casualties. Ah well, more where they came from. She had a crate load of them out there, and an awful lot fit into a crate. One of the things that Bird had kindly left behind when he rabbited were the blueprints and manufacturing instructions. Angel Flight and T-Birds returning to base for rearm. She was already flying more of her eyes over the battlefield, looking for trouble spots. Copy that. Godspeed and get back here as fast as you can. Roger. Save some for us. All that practice with bigger and bigger teams was paying off. She was in a kind of zen state where it was possible to keep track of everything in all of her monitors. Well, almost all. Infill team was holding off till the second wave, so she could ignore them for now. Cut off by the gash of fire across their escape route, the Thulians headed for the logical place for defensive entrenchment until the swath of termite and boost napalm burned out. Of course they did. They knew this land, and they knew the best places to dig in. However, as familiar with the lay of the land as they might be, they were not the only ones smart enough to figure out where the good defensive positions would be. As Echo-1 and CCCP raced toward them, the Nazis hit the concealed thermite mines that had been planted there in the pre-dawn hours by some very select Echo-Metas. A second swath of fire exploded up on the ridge. Even though she was expecting it, she jumped, her heart racing. Verdigree stared glumly at the view from his spy cam.
It showed a vaguely human-shaped swath of light hovering motionless just above the office that he knew held the new Echo Chief Belladon Parker. It was the Seraphim, just high enough off the ground to put her out of range of a sneak attack from Fei Li. Not that he thought a sneak attack would succeed. Her presence was just a great big fat warning sign. No trespassing violators will be ashed. She knew that, and she knew he knew, and he knew she knew he knew. <sighs> I could overcome her. That was Fei Li, who was lounging in one of Verdigree's best chairs, feet up on the desk. If you doubt I could take her alone, then between us, your bodyguard and I could. Bad idea, Verdigree sighed. First of all, you've never seen the Seraphim all out. I have. He'd been collecting eyewitness accounts and video capture ever since she visited him. She's a four, General. For all I know, she's a five. Never mind that delusion that she's an angel. And everything else, she's as sane as they come, and she has pretty much held back on what she can do. He thought of the footage he'd seen of her taking on not one death machine, single-handed, but a full dozen of them. It had taken her no time at all. That one hadn't made the news. He'd quietly bought footage and the rights so he could study it. He still didn't know why she chose particular incidents to handle, but it was pretty clear that if she decided that she needed to, she was definitely someone not to cross. She wants Belladonna Blue alive and in charge of Echo. You make one move on her or the blue chick and... He made a little motion with his fingers. You only got away the first time on a frontal attack because, for whatever reason, the Seraphim didn't feel like killing you. You wouldn't stand the chance of an ant in a deep fryer. I think you underestimate me as well, Faye shrugged. Nevertheless, Echo is doing us a favor, weakening our greater enemy, and we should allow them to do so unmolested, I suppose. Verdigree couldn't help but acknowledge the wisdom in that. But his pride had been stung at the loss of Echo and the public disgrace that he had suffered because of it, and the allegations that had been levied against him. Bella John Parker would live, for the moment. One thing that Verdigree never did was to forget to whom he owed debts, however. All in time. Natalia watched through her binoculars as Echo One ripped through the remaining Nazi troopers. They moved fast, and they were well-coordinated. The Echo metahuman that was serving as their squad leader had dismounted from the racecar-looking metahuman, firing his grenade launcher at a steady pace. A tactic that worked here that had not worked in city streets was to fire at their feet. The friable soil cratered, and they generally toppled over. That left them vulnerable. With many assault rifles and multiple grenade launchers, it was short work to take care of the already weakened Nazis. The odd meta that looked like a child's transforming toy, Speed Fiend, performed a suicide slide, ripping through two weakened troopers under his metal treads. In cover at the ridge behind the skirmish, Savior had positioned several two-man rocket teams. Armed with Stinger missiles and AT-4 launchers, they fired barrages of rockets at any troublesome Nazis. Her heart warmed at the sight of the carnage that the explosions wrought, with her mind flitting back to the massacre at Savior's Gate. Each Nazi killed gave her joy. This is right. This is how true Soviets fight. Crush the enemy. In no quarter given.
One of the metahumans, one that she didn't immediately recognize, fabricated a glowing chain of energy. It lazily looped itself around three of the armored troopers, drawing them tight together. Immobile, the Nazis were an easy target for the rocket teams and the rest of Echo-1. When the last Thulian trooper was killed, the squad began to set up defensive positions. They were hasty and made to be retreated from quickly. Now we wait. Now they know we are serious opponents, and their real battle begins. She amped up the magnification on her binoculars, shifting her view to the entrance of the Thulian headquarters. The force that exited was much larger, much better organized. Hundreds of troopers, dozens of their floating death machines. Echo 1, being stick to the plan. Disengage after initial contact, being sure to stick to primary retreat vectors. How copying? Reading you five by five, Red Leader. Can't see for the dust here. What's the vector? Is pink your six o'clock and closing? Savior noted with satisfaction that he didn't waste breath in answering. The Kriegers were rapidly closing within firing range for the missiles and grenade launchers. Commencing fire on your mark, Red Leader. She waited until they were just at the edge. This was meant to sting, not be a serious threat. Now, slap faces. A withering but short volley of fire issued from Echo One's position. Several Nazis went down, not enough to force them to take up a defensive posture, but enough to let them know that the good guys were still there. Let their fascist arrogance take the better of them. And that it did. The remaining Nazis charged forward, powered legs thrusting against the rough terrain at frightening speed. Echo One immediately disengaged. They didn't bother to move in bounds with cover fire. The Nazis were still out of range to use their energy cannons. As frighteningly powerful as those cannons were, they were not precision weapons. Terror and intimidation was the name of the game of the Thulians. Getting close, and count on their nigh-invulnerable armor to keep them safe as they mowed down nearly defenseless foes. No longer. They are sheep, not wolves. And we have very long teeth. All positions, be ready! There was, as Pavel liked to say, going to be a great Dixie Fry. The screens of the death machine had a selective binocular plate. It was weird and awkward to use, almost to the point of necessitating a third arm, but it worked well enough once you got the hang of it. John and Bulwark watched from the two forward-facing seats. They saw the Thulians rush out to engage Echo One, saw the metahumans pull back into the valley. John noted that Speed Fiend was among them. He didn't have time to dwell on it, however. Just as the Thulians had the whole of their initial force in the valley, three flights of fast movers, supersonic jets, ripped through the sky and loosed their payloads in the kind of maneuver called an arc light. Huge columns of fire shot out across the ground, incinerating or weakening the Nazi troopers. Fire, extreme or prolonged heat, made them vulnerable. They were getting their fair share, and then some. All right. Bulwark squared himself in his seat, placing his arms in the piloting sleeves. That's our cue. The death machine lurched forward, almost stuttering along. Beads of sweat stood out on Bulwark's forehead as he concentrated. He made an adjustment to one of the many pedals located in front of his seat. The steering straightened out, and John almost wouldn't have known they were moving forward if it weren't for the scenery flashing past through the viewport. Roger and Phil, your go. Everything's green by the timetable. Take her in. They'd been over the terrain until they probably could have walked in blindfolded. The route was set. 
Vicky was only monitoring for this part of the trip to keep them updated on what was going on down with the fight if it was going to impact them, and warn them of anything unexpected. One of her little spy eyes was glued to the top of the Thulian orb, so she didn't have to depend on the orb's optics. John watched the second wave of Thulians spilling out of the base. There were most certainly more of them. Death machines, troopers, and those weird mechanical eagles. Part of him wondered how many more were in there. The sphere lurched into the air, wobbling towards the entrance. This wasn't due to Bulwark's piloting, this was to simulate damage, to give them a reason for returning to the base. The sphere lurched drunkenly towards the entrance. This made for a miserable ride inside. When they were close to seven hundred yards away, Vicky cut into the channel again. Infel, halt! 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 Angel flight and T-bird incoming! Steal rain! The death machine grudgingly obeyed the commands. Moments later, John saw the ground vibrate as the blue angels, flying low and way too fast too close, went over their heads. They pulled up, clearing the mountain headquarters by a good margin. A split second later, dozens of small explosions rocked the massed Thulian forces at the entrance. Thousands of bomblets and mission-specific munitions dropped, turning some, but not damned enough by John's estimation, of the troopers into twisted metal and smoldering corpses. Heads up, Broken Eagle, three o'clock on an intersect. There was probably something like radar in this thing, but if so, no one had figured out how to use it. Bulwark halted their forward progress, and a wing-crumpled eagle plowed into the ground ahead of them. Put some juice in it, Bull. Things are heating up out there, and you're going to wind up as part of the collateral damage. Bulwark said nothing in reply, but when the sphere got moving again, it was going a lot quicker. Bulwark bounced along the ground as part of their ruse, and every bounce made the occupant's teeth rattle. Remind me never to let you park my car. Thank you, Operative Naj. Keep sharp, people. Hug right. They were at the entrance now, and hugged one side while fresh troops streamed out. No one seemed to notice them. They're hailing you. I have it covered. Hug the right. See anything like a set of docking bays? Take the third one. Moving slower, Bulwark glided in. Clamps settled onto the hull. Bulwark and Genie inserted their hands into two more pairs of sleeves and waited. A few Thulians dashed towards the sphere, but before they could reach it, Vicky gave the signal. They're coming to get you out. Light them up. Moving their hands wildly in the sleeves, as if all the weapons had malfunctioned at once, Bulwark and Genie hosed down the interior of what must be a hangar. The Thulian screams were so intense they bled over Vicky's freak into theirs. Gouts of white-hot thermite and nitro-napalm scoured the entire interior hangar. Blasts of orange energy scored the walls, ceiling and floor, blasting docking clamps and equipment into vapor. Clear. John was the first one to unbuckle his safety restraints. Time to dismount. Matai slapped a square orange panel. What had looked like a seamless section of plating separated, irising to become an escape hatch. It was a long way down to the floor. The two infiltration teams had practiced jumping from the craft until their execution was perfect. It took only a few moments for everyone to land on the floor and take a defensive position for their assigned sector. John pulled two of Vicky's eyes out of the belt pouch and tossed them up. They vanished. Her voice sounded calm and steady. Rock and roll, troops. Bella was glued to the multiple feeds from Vicky's station. She couldn't even imagine how Vic was coordinating it all. She was practically on fire with the need to be there herself, 
except she couldn't. She was head of Echo not to be risked. If she'd been there, chances were that Verdigree would have somehow managed to find a way to drop one of the hammers on her head, or had one of the other weapons reprogrammed to target her. It wasn't as if he didn't have people almost as good at hacking as Vicky, and he had probably set up plenty of back doors when he was all cozy with the U.S. military. Or, well, there was a lot he could do, and there was also no way of telling whether or not he still had another mole or ten in their ranks. There was a damned good reason why the seraphim was hovering just outside her window, and it had nothing to do with providing a little more ambient light in the office. She knew all this. It didn't help. John used hand signals, drawing his team in. Untermensch, Soviet Bear, and Mamona took position behind him. He caught Bulwark doing the same in his peripheral vision. Motu, Matai, Silent Knight, and Red Genie filed in behind their team leader with practiced precision. John reached down to his belt, flicking a rocker switch on a control unit. His sub-vocal mics kicked in, allowing him to talk, if you could call it that, without actually making any sound. His voice came over the comms, but seemed flat in a way. Team two, moving out. Team one, moving. John's team was tasked with taking out the key areas in the Thulian HQ. The trick was, they had to do it without alerting the entire base that there were intruders doing all sorts of naughty things in their midst. They all crept along, almost perfectly silent, with their rifles trained on their sectors of responsibility. John knew that they would have to sacrifice some of their stealth, and soon, the longer they took, the more people would die on the surface. Somewhere just ahead of them, Vicky's eye flew, invisible, scouting for them. With a flick of his head, he keyed over to Vic's frequency, patching it into his team's comms. We're at the hangar exit into the main base. Which way are we headed, and what's the opposition look like beyond this door? Talking without saying anything was another one of the high-tech things that weirded John out. It didn't discount the obvious tactical advantages, which he may well have killed for when he was still a part of a recognized military. Clear at the door. Left, left, right, left. After the fourth corner, you hit a main drag and it's full of troopers. Number? What's their disposition? I count six positive with a possible seventh. Can't get the eye past them without a chance to pick it up. Static positions. I'll scoot this eye down the other way to make sure you don't get a patrol on your tail. Static positions meant they were either a guard post or had otherwise been in the same general area for a minute and a half. Roger. Moving. He motioned for the team to follow. The floors and the walls of the Thulian HQ seemed to be made of the same slick-looking metal that their trooper armor and death machines were. John felt his disgust for the Nazi material welling up in him, and used the emotional capital. His team traversed the distance quickly, stacking up at the intersection with the main drag. John opened a pouch and pulled out one of his personal magic eyes that Vicky had given him, dropping it to the floor. It rolled into the middle, invisible, yet patching in a full view of the hallway into his HUD. I believe that this is the welcome wagon. Vic could see everything that he could see through his HUD implant and, of course, the magic eyes. Nobody coming up on your six o'clock. Unfortunately, Vic was right. Six Thulians. Three were part of the checkpoint guard position, while the other three looked to be technicians of some sort, working on a sparking panel. Looks like the kinetic bombardment did a little more damage than we thought. Good. Every Nazi was armed. John signaled for Mamona to come up to the front. 
she tapped Bear's shoulder, and the Russian automatically took up a rearguard position. She looked to John, and he nodded to her. Mamona slung her rifle, bending down to kneel. Her brow screwed up in concentration, and she brought her gloved hands to her chest. John saw the effects through his magic eye camera. The closest Thulians, which included all of the technicians and two of the guards, completely froze in place. The last guard began to retch and heave violently, bile and vomit spilling to the floor. Go! John was the first around the corner, with Untermensch following close behind. Their rifles barked quietly, suppressed rounds stitching through the Thulians. In less than two seconds, all of the Nazis were dead. Vic, any chatter? So far, internal freaks are full of nothing to concern you. How Vicky was patching into Thulian comm frequencies, he had no idea. Probably more of her magic stuff. A lot of general quarters palaver and emergency repairs in their internals. A lot of screaming and dying and attack orders on their externals. Roger. Let the bastards burn. What's Gammyun and the scope say about where to head from here? Halt, halt, halt. There was a pause. It was long enough that she was probably talking to someone else. Gammyun, most likely. Gamayun was creating a map as they moved, staying a little ahead of them, using her own curious power of remote viewing. Unfortunately, she couldn't see anything much further away from her own location than five miles. Needless to say, she was the best protected person on the battlefield today. Ahead, five hundred yards. Right, right ahead, another five hundred. Downstairs on right. Stairs are clear. Stand by for charge. The team proceeded. Vic warned them when to slow up, when to take cover to avoid a group of running Thulians, when to charge ahead. It went much faster than if they'd been going in without her near-omniscient overwatch. It took a lot of energy to travel silently, though. John was feeling it when they reached their first destination, the main armory for the entire Thulian North American HQ. John floated his personal magic eye into the room. He saw rows and rows of evil-looking rifles, pistols, and crates of munitions. It was all housed behind some sort of clear door. It looked thick and hardy. There were four Thulians in the room, all looking very nervous. You have two minutes. Patrol just came through. You'll have to take out the next one. And... Mark. The HUD lit up with a countdown clock in the upper right-hand quadrant of each teammate's vision. I love my job. When this is all over, you guys are all stealth returning my overdue DVDs. John used a control on his belt to tilt his magic eye up and to the left. Vic, question. I'm seeing what looks like fire suppression systems in this room. Can you trigger them without alerting the rest of the base? Good question. Watch for the patrol. Let me noodle on in a second. Hunter, a bare hand on floor, please. The Russian complied. He was the only team member with Bear, though impossibly resilient, hands, discounting Bear, whose hands were titanium. It didn't take her very long. Some of that shite is unstable as hell. If I give it a bounce, it'll go off with a little fireball and that will set off the suppression. Keep that in mind. Might save us munitions. John kept his suppressed rifle trained down the hallway, careful not to peek the barrel around the corner. Roger, I can bounce on your signal. Go for it. Roger. Two guards, your ten, and your three o'clock. Two guards, unters, four and nine o'clock. There was another pause. And 
Mark. There was a shudder of the floor, a pop, a loud hissing sound, followed by angry shouts in German. John swung around the corner, his Thulean was right where Vicky had said, at his ten o'clock. Two bursts of suppressed fire from his and Hunter's rifles, and all four Nazis were down. Some halon gas hung in the air, but not enough to be dangerous. Time to get to work. Bear, Mamona, plant the charges. Hunter, take up position on the door, and don't shoot me, it ruined my day. Bear and Mamona ran behind the counter of the armory. The transparent door to the main arsenal slid open after Pavel pressed the hand of one of the Kriegers to its reader pad. They began to set the explosive charges, while John and Georgie took defensive positions on the door. Guys, drag the corpsicles over behind those crates. Can't be seen from the door. Vicky seemed to have eyes everywhere. Fewer internal alerts we set off before we blow this pop stand, the better. Bear did so after he finished setting his last charge. The last few digits of the countdown began flashing in John's HUD. Heads up, incoming. The metallic footsteps of the patrol marked their approach, even over the hum of unfamiliar tech and the faint vibrations of the floor, walls, and ceiling. Untermensch slapped his hand on the weapon barrel of the first Nazi through the door. He jerked it towards the center of the room, and Thulian followed, still gripping his weapon out of reflex. The rest of the patrol quickly rushed in, confused. They were greeted with a barrage of suppressed rifle fire. Unter unloaded the rest of his magazine into the trooper he had pulled through the doorway. John could see a quiet fury behind Georgie's eyes, carefully controlled. There was a lot of rage built up in the man, left over and allowed to stew since the Great Patriotic War. With the charges in place, the squad moved out to their next objective. Gravity generators. Gonna have to be sure to document as much as we can. He spared another thought for Sarah, this one of gratitude. If she hadn't filled him with her own strength, he'd have already collapsed by now. Gotta make this count. And get home. You have been listening to Season 7 of the Secret World Chronicle podcast novel series. The Secret World Chronicle podcast is narrated and produced by Veronica Jagger. Music is Exciting Trailer by Kevin McLeod, available at Incompetech.com. The Secret World Chronicle is published by the amazing people at Bayon Books. Follow the series at www.secretworldchronicle.com. Join us on Facebook and check out the authors on Twitter. And as always, thank you for listening.